Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right, let's go to James chapter 1, James chapter 1, and talk tonight about receiving the word. You know, um, it may, you probably heard this before, but it makes a difference um, when things happen in life, whether we respond to it or react to it. And I think of reaction as kind of a negative, negative response, whereas responding the way that God wants us to uh, can bring about his glory in a situation and and also are good. And I think James is concerned about that. In James chapter 1, if you uh, want to look at this with me, let's just read verses 1 through 25. We'll deal with 19 through 25 specifically. But James says um, here, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humility since they will pass away like the wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When prompted, no one should say, God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give birth to us through the word, that we might be a kind of first fruits among all that he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. And slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word and doesn't do what it says, like someone who looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself, goes away immediately and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. All right. So tonight, as as we look at this passage, I think that 
one of the things that we want to keep in mind here is a context. And, and so, first of all, let, let's ask the question, who is, who is James writing to? Who's James writing to? The 12 tribes scattered abroad. Is that literal Israel? Or is it something else? Literal Israel? Okay. Is he writing to only Jewish people or a broader audience than that, do you think? I'm going to suggest to you that it's not, it's not just literal Israel. He's writing to, to Christians. We see this uh, later on. It would, be, it would be surprising to me if he was sectioning out um, only those who are of Jewish descent because he talks about in here uh, having received the word, having, having received the word, and having become the first fruits of all uh, who were of all things that were created. And so I'm going to suggest that James is writing not only to uh, Jewish Christians, but to all Christians, okay? And he calls them, I think, the, the 12 tribes scattered abroad, because at this point, this is an early letter, I think he sees the Gentiles as being grafted in, just as Paul does, that we're, we're coming together as one people of God in Christ. And so as he writes this uh, letter, if he's just writing to to Jewish Christians, uh, what's it doing in our Bible? Because here we are, Gentiles, all this time later. This is uh, not only for Jewish Christians, but certainly for us as well. And so looking on, um, what does is, what is the idea of scattered suggest to you here? And, and I'm, I'm not looking for any specific thing. I'm going to suggest something in just a moment. But, but when you hear scattered, uh, is that a positive thing or does that sound more negative? Sounds more negative, doesn't it? Like, the, like not necessarily that this is a good thing. The, the Greek word that stands behind this is diaspora. You maybe you've heard that. This, these are those that are, are scattered, uh, the people of God uh, speckling the landscape wherever they go. And so um, notice here that in this uh, passage, you can look at some of the headings and see this, but that the context is that of trials. There's trials that are taking place through here. Notice, uh, as, as I said just a moment ago, uh, scattered. This may be a negative. I can't prove that, but uh, it suggests to me kind of a negative tone towards the fact that the people are not gathered together. And if you remember in the early church, um, what was it that scattered them? Do you remember? This is in Acts chapter 8. Right after something happens, kind of big. Acts chapter 7, Stephen. Acts chapter 8, what happens? The persecution breaks out, and, and that causes the Jerusalem church, which is kind of huddled together, to be scattered. They go scattered. It's, it's a negative thing in one sense, because I think everybody there would have preferred their comfort zone. You know, we, come, we prefer our comfort zones, which is gathered together. And... Um, what happens is that they're all scattered, and as they go, they, they go preaching the Word, and they're taking uh, the Word of God with them. And so um, while it is a positive thing in terms of the kingdom, it may, there may be a negative connotation with the idea of scattered here. But in verse 2, notice that the context continues to be trials because it says, Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. This, is a, this uh, word for many kinds suggests like, a multiple array of trials that you're facing. Uh, and then verse 12 um, talks about persevering under trial. Verse 13, temptation. 
uh, dealing with temptation. And so these are some of the difficulties of the Christian life. And I just think it's good to keep that in mind because of what's coming after it, I think, is related back to it. So the context is trials and how do we how do we how do we respond to those or are we to react to those? And what does God want us to do and not want us to do when we're facing difficulties of those kinds? Well, there's a reassurance here. And you'll see that throughout chapter 1, there's 7, which is like the perfect number, right? Uh, seven instances of uh, this truth that God is good. In verses 3 and 4, God is good by allowing trials to bring us to maturity. We don't have to uh, imagine that these things are spiritual setbacks, but they can actually uh, be used by God to bring us to maturity in verses 3 and 4. Count it joy when you face these trials, because you know that these produce perseverance, and perseverance will cause us to be complete in Him. The second thing is that God can give wisdom to respond to trials. Oftentimes we we pull this scripture out of context, and it's true in a general way, but I think it has a little bit more uh, grab to it when we understand the context, okay? So the verse I'm talking about is, if any of you lacks wisdom. So we, we like pull that out and just use it whenever whenever we need wisdom of any kind. That's true. God does give wisdom. But consider the context here is that of trials. When do we need wisdom most? It's when, when they're, we're in the thick of it. Like, what do we do now? Now that we're going through this difficulty, how do we respond to this? We've got uh, a negative over here, and perhaps somebody's attacking us over here. How are we going to respond to that? Lord, what are we to do? And we can know that we can call upon him, and God is good to give wisdom. Verse 12 shows us that God is good because God promises reward to those who stand whatever test it is that they're facing. Verse 13, God is not trying to get us to fall. We can know this, that God's not trying to get us to fall. He doesn't tempt, nor is he tempted with evil. Uh, the trials instead can expose weaknesses in us, which God can, can use to bring us to maturity. And then verse 17 tells us that God gives every good and perfect gift. Verse 17 again says that God is unchangingly good. He doesn't cast shifting shadows. So the image I think here is like the sun moving across the sky. You know how the, when the sun moves across the sky, the shadows, they shift and change. And so they lengthen and they shorten depending on where the sun is. And so when you wake up in the morning, the sun is on is over here. And, uh, you know, if you're not in Alaska in the summertime. And then uh, it goes down over there somewhere. And all the while, the shadows are shifting and moving. And the point that James is trying to make is that God doesn't cast shifting shadows. He doesn't change in his goodness. He's always good, even when he responds against sin that's an expression of his goodness, okay? So, so we can know that he's good. And that, that's really important when we're, we're going through it to know that God hasn't changed. He's not like the, the unpredictable, surly um, person that you know that you just never know what mood they're going to be in. Um, I hope you're not thinking of me. Verse 18 uh, shows us that God chose to regenerate us as the first fruits as a guarantee that all would be renewed. Um, those who he called and he gave salvation were the first fruits of the regeneration of all creation. Remember how it says in Romans 8 that all of creation groans, waiting for the adoption to it. There's a, the earth is under the curse still. 
and there's coming a day when that will be lifted, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and God can once again give us that full blessing that uh, we once had. So God is good in the middle of trials. That's kind of the backdrop for all of this. So what are we to do uh, in the middle of trials? What what responses honor God and what don't? What kind of response should we have and what kind of reactions should we avoid? And it's hard to see the connection between all of that and what follows here. And, and part of that is due to James's style. James has a particular style of writing that it's just basically sentence after sentence after sentence. He, he does it almost like some of our translations show it, like verse, 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 instead of this uh, developed style where there's a bunch of subordinate things. He just kind of keeps going, and uh, like, the, like the proverbial train, you know? And so some of that's that, but you can see where some of this is going if you read it all together, and that's why we did that. And if you're going through some tough times, what might your reaction be? Well, one of the things that people do, and, and we do when we're going through something tough, is um, we can question or make assumptions. I'm just going to put that in our broad category. We can question uh, or make assumptions. What are some of the questions we ask if we're, we're going through something? These Christians probably are going through a persecution of some kind. What's some of the questions that we ask? when we're going through something. Why me? Okay, why me? <laughs> yep, why me? All right, what else? What did I do wrong? Yep, what did I do wrong? Uh, any Anything else? I mean, there, there could be lots of questions. What are you trying to teach me? Hey, that's a, that's a good one. I think that takes a very God-centered perspective on things. Um, but let's let's assume, just for the sake of this, that we're not thinking God-centered. What questions could we... I mean, we may be Christians, but still sometimes thoughts come into our mind. They're going to get theirs, all right? <laughs> That's more of a statement, Miss Evelyn. <laughs> yep, they're going to get theirs, all right? Um, how about, where is God in this? Does he, does he even know what's going on? And is God good? Or maybe a little more on the sanctified side, um, we haven't questioned whether God's good or whether he's there, but we might be asking, what's the purpose in this? What, what purpose is there? And can anything good come out of this? And what should I do? What should I do in response to this? And I think James answers those questions in the paragraphs we read. Um, and so we might make some assumptions like, God's angry with me or he's not there, or he doesn't care, or whatever it is, we can make assumptions. And so those questions and assumptions kind of go together. But the other thing that can happen is a little more active, and that's that we can respond in a certain way, um, or react, maybe a better way to say that, to keep with our theme here. Uh, what are some ways that we react when things aren't going how we hope they would? Think of more active responses. Lash out, okay. Anything else? Okay. Yes, that's exact. That's what we should do. Maybe, um, maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe we get angry. We get vocal. We're gonna get mine if if it's gonna go this way. Forget about doing things the right way. I'm just gonna go get what I'm I'm owed. Okay. 
because he's going to deal with that later on in chapter 4 when he says, why are there fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the fact that you're at war with one another? And why are you at war with one another? It's because you, you want, but you can't have. And you ask, and, or you want, and you can't have, and you war, and you fight, and you murder and kill in order to get it. And you have not because you ask not. Even when you ask, you ask for the wrong motives. And so that's kind of the, I gotta get, I'm going to get what is owed me. And then some, some, sometimes people just give up. Like this is the way it's going to be. I've served you faithfully, and now this, and they just give up. And so I think the book of James answers all of these in a way that is broad enough to apply to whatever the varied situations of people scattered everywhere would be. He's He knows uh, what they're going through. And uh, these people who are trying to serve God. And probably the most important thing to stay connected um, to God and in the right frame of mind is to stay connected to his word. Okay, this, this brings the world in which God is central, which is the true world, but we're, we, we live with an illusion. The illusion is put on by the media, put on by our limited perspective. We can't see everything. Okay? Uh, the illusion is put on by philosophies and other religions and even to some extent, our American way of life can put that on. Um, and so in order to get back into the God-centered world, we, we need to come back to his word. And that's a world in which God dominates. And uh, it's the true world. Okay, And so when we read the Bible, uh, it may feel at times like we've gone to another country. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. But if you've ever found like the names hard to pronounce or the places or what's going on here, exactly why they're doing these particular cultural things. It's because, in a way, we've entered another world, and it's not one that we're as familiar with, but there is, there's hope. I want you to know there's hope. And I, I want to say it again, even though I know you probably get tired of hearing it. The Bible gets better and better the more you read it. The more you understand it, it opens up to you. And when we go to another country, if you've ever been um, to other places, you have a different perspective on your own world when you come back. And so every time we visit the lands of these, this Bible, we come back. And I'm just, I'm talking about like your morning Bible reading. You're, back, you're in Second Samuel, for example, and you read about what's going on with David there and God dealing with David. And you travel there, you come back, and you're coming back to a different world. And you have a different perspective on it because of where you've been. And so we enter that God-centered world, and it... It helps us to respond to um, the challenges of life in a different way. Or how many of us have been um, having a poor day, and then we read the Psalms, and the Psalms speak to us in a way that brings hope to that situation. So that this is what we're talking about. If we're going to stay grounded in the middle of this, what James is talking about here, we need to make frequent visits to the land of the Bible. And that, that sounds kind of corny, but you know what I'm trying to say here is that by staying connected to God's Word, we stay in a God-centered frame of mind. And so it's one of the reasons why just knowing the facts about the Bible is not enough. We need to inhabit these pages over and over again. I hope you understand what I mean by that, and I hope that'll catch on if, if it hasn't already because there's true riches there. Okay, so he gives us some ways to deal with this, and um, 
there are three commands in the section we want to look at here, three commands, and we know that because of the way that these words are spelled in the original language. They they spell words that are verbs that are commands. Uh, they have a different ending on them. Okay, So in, in the Greek, I don't know how they do it in Hebrew, but in the Greek they do it this way. It has a different ending on it, and there are three. There's actually four, but two of them are saying the same thing. And so I'm going to reduce that to to three for us tonight. Okay, and we'll make it real um, practical as we look at these commands. Um, it might seem there's more, like there's more commands than this, but some of the other ones fit underneath the category of these these main three. Okay, so the first one is this. Look at verse 19 with me. Uh, it says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note, take note of this, understand this, um, hear this, you could say, everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Okay, now here's the first command, and it, it actually uh, has to do with the word um, be, be. The, the be verb here, which is uh, be listeners, verses 19 through 20. Uh, be listeners. First, uh, and here's where the two come in. The first one is uh, take note of this. That's actually a command. Okay, so when you hear take note of this, he's commanding, James is commanding them, listen, listen. Okay, and then he says everyone should be quick to listen. That's the command right there. The other parts of it fall in line underneath that listening part. So the first part of this is to listen, to be slow, uh, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. I'd like you to notice that the one that we're to do readily in that list is to listen. The other things that we're to do not so readily is to speak, is to get angry. Do you see what I'm saying? That one is more of a do this, and the others are more of a don't do that. So there's a positive command, and there's kind of a, a negative, if you want to see it that way. Not a negative in terms of these things are bad, but uh, speed up to listen, slow down to speak, slow down to get angry. That's the, the command here. And I'd like you to notice that the emphasis on this is being listeners when it comes to um, what's going on? And I don't know exactly where this needs to apply with its relationship to the difficulties that are happening, but I could see some broad areas where this needs to apply. Um, we ought to be people who are ready to listen. We're people who are hungry for the truth, that want to know the truth, that we're not, we're not looking for a reason to jump in and jump down somebody's throat. We're not trying to uh, create an argument, and I hope that we're not of those that are looking for conflict because we enjoy it. Do you know there are people like that? They love to stir up things. They like the drama, and they'll say a little thing that will stir things up, and they'll go away smiling. And we're not those kind of people because surely that's not what God wants, right? God doesn't love it when we divide the body of Christ. And so instead of that, what we really need to be after is truth. And I hope that as the people of God, we love truth more than we love our own opinion. Do you, do you know what I mean by that? That's like, I don't know how to describe this, but um, if you get in an argument with somebody, I wonder if, do you prefer to win the argument or do you prefer to have the truth be known even if you're wrong? Okay, so I know what our flesh wants. Our flesh always wants to win the argument. But but I'm asking, and, and this can happen with our spouses. Like sometimes we know when we're 
playing the devil's advocate. We're really not on that side of things, but we're just, we're just trying to win the argument. And what God really wants us to do is be after truth. And I think this is the point of this as he's um, challenging these believers. Who is it that we need to be quick to listen to? I think we need to be quick to listen to God. That's without, without a question. Um, and sometimes we need to not say anything in response. We need to just listen. And there are times when we need to listen to other believers and not respond and just listen and think about it and not have to react or respond in any way. And sometimes we need to listen to unbelievers and not respond and not get angry. And sometimes we need to listen to people who are on the other side of the political aisle and not speak and not get angry. Do you know what I mean? That we need to be willing to listen. And I think this can apply really broadly. But I think the point of it is is that we need to be people who are hungry for the truth, that we give uh, respect to others. I read this book a while back called Tactics by Greg Kokel. He's an apologist, and he has this rule that he operates by in his uh, apologetics. Apologetics is when you uh, defend the faith and you you reason with people through their troubles with Christianity. And um, he does this on college campuses and he does it in conversations with waitresses and wherever he's at. He's talking about the gospel if people give him a hearing. And his rule is he'll always let the other person have the last word. And I don't know if you know how hard that is. That's hard. But he lets them have the last word, and he promises them that courtesy. And the reason he does that is he says, I'm going to say that all that I need to say, but I need to know that even if we disagree, I still love you as a person. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to say what you need to say last. And I'll think about it. I think that shows respect for others. It doesn't mean you agree. It doesn't mean they're right. Uh, You could be right the whole time. But the Bible doesn't even at this point, even address whether you're right or wrong. It just says, as a principle, be quick to listen. Quick to listen. Okay, ready to listen. I like what the Bible says in Acts chapter 17. You remember, we're dealing with uh, the Thessalonian letters on Sunday morning and the the first letter. And Paul goes to Thessalonica in Acts 17, and things go pretty good. And a church is established there, but after a period of time, there's some jealousies that rise up in the synagogue, and they want to get rid of Paul. They want to get him out of town, and he has to leave. And so he leaves, um, and he goes to Berea. Do you remember this, Acts 17? When he goes to Berea, the Bible says something about the Bereans. They were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. They, they listened intently to what Paul said. This is in Acts 17:11, To find out if it was true, and, and they checked it to see whether it was true. I think I have that written here. Let me just read it. Now, the Bereans, uh, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message, and this is important, with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures uh, every day to see if what Paul said was true. So I'll ask you in that, does it seem like they're looking for flaws in what Paul says, or does it seem more like they're looking for the truth in it? And I I know that sounds like a hair-splitting distinction, but I think it's a really important one is that we can get really combative in the way that we go about life, that we're always looking for the fault in what other people say. And I think that what this describes more is that the Bereans are so eager for the truth 
that they're checking the scriptures to see that it lines up. They do look for falsehood, and we do look for falsehood. I'm not saying we close a blind eye to falsehood or lies. I'm saying that that's not our main objective. Our main objective is to get to the truth. Does, does that make sense? And so in doing so, it will expose the lies. But this is not a matter of so much practice as it is motivation. What is the motivation? It's to get to the truth. And when it says they're of more noble-minded, that they were fair. Okay, the Thessalonian... Uh, synagogue was not fair to Paul. And so when he goes to Berea, they're fair-minded, meaning that they will, they will give him a fair hearing and listen to it and evaluate it and look and see if the Bible confirms that. And so it's not about uh, them being already set against other people. Do you know, we can uh, already make up our minds, especially when we know people well, we can make up our minds what they mean before they say it or when they say it not give them a fair hearing and assume what they mean. So I don't know if you've read Screwtape Letters, but C.S. Lewis talks about, and the whole premise of the book is that there's a senior tempter who's a demon giving advice to his nephew who's a, a junior tempter who's just kind of getting his feet wet in this tempting business. And they, they're dealing with a man uh, who has recently given his heart to Christ. And so... Um, Screwtape is writing to his nephew, Wormwood, and Wormwood is the junior tempter who's in charge of this newly converted man. And uh, this man, uh, Screwtape tells him, uh, make sure that when his mom says this certain thing, that you take his mind all the way back to the nursery and remind him of all the ways that she probably means that. And this way you can accumulate daily pinpricks that add up. Okay, so what he's trying to do is get this guy to be prejudiced against his mother, that everything she says has a negative spin on it. And that's the way that I think the enemy works. And what I think we have to do to combat that as Christians is we have to always be ready to believe the best of everybody. That doesn't mean we suspend all judgment, but it means that we try as best we can to believe the best of what they're doing. And so we're ready we're ready listeners in, in this. So he says, be quick to listen. This is ready to listen, slow to speak. Uh, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13, to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. Um, and you remember how much James is going to deal with the tongue later on in chapter 3 when he, he talks about the tongue as a uh, a hellish fire full of iniquity. It's, it's set on fire by hell. And with it, we bless God and curse people. And this ought not so to be. So he talks about the the tongue and, and later on. And so when he says, be slow to speak, this is a great precaution to um, to sinning. He says, anybody that has, uh, have, has mastery over what they say is a perfect person. That's the hardest of all of our members to control. Okay. And then slow to get, slow to get angry. Um, this, I think, uh, takes the help of the Lord to do that. But we have to, we have to suppress. And I think we can do it. I think we can do it with God's help. That we are in control and not our tempers. And this part of being self-controlled by the Holy Spirit. So this calling for us uh, to have a slow, reasoned response. And so, what's that for? This might be the key to better relationships within the church. Quick to listen, slow to speak, 
slow to get angry. And I think probably if we think that somebody's viewpoint is just stupid, it's probably that we haven't really fully understood it. There's probably good reasons for believing what they believe, even if we disagree, even if we see better reasons for not believing that. But we ought to listen and take it in. That would develop better relationship with the church. What about with dealing with people generally? And we can have a better response to persecution. If these believers are being persecuted, uh, one of the ways to better deal with that, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry, and, uh, and certainly a better relationship with the Lord. Sometimes we need to sit and listen. The first command then that comes out of this that James gives is to be, to be listeners. We need to be listeners to to others. The second is, it's going to sound kind of weird in, in our language, but we need to, unless you're talking about football, we need to be receivers. Okay, receivers. Okay, look at verse 21 with me. It says there, um, therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which will save you. Humbly accept. Okay, this is a when I talk about being a receiver, I'm talking about the kind of person who welcomes the Word of God. He says, accept the Word. Humbly accept the Word that's planted in you. You would think this first part, get rid of uh, all moral filth, that would be a command. But it's actually not a command, except that it's related to the accepting of the Word. So this is like a, a subpart to accepting the Word. Somehow, accepting the Word will cause us to want to get rid of the moral filth. That these two are related to one another and... and uh, at least in James' writing here, they're not detached. They're, they're, they're two of the same thing. They're parts of the same thing. But the main thing here is receiving the word. Okay? Or to receive the word. Being a receiver of the word. Okay? So welcoming to the word might be another way to say that. There's four things that are said about receiving the word here. The first one is that the word must be humbly Received in English, this is an adverb, and uh, grammar was never something I loved. But I'm finding that it's really important when we understand the Bible. An adverb. What does an adverb do? Anybody know? It modifies a verb. Okay, it tells us how we do our verbs. So you can do your verbs like, you know, if you had a a kid, uh, you know that your your child can do the thing you tell them to do in multiple ways. They can do it with a bad attitude. They can do it with a good attitude. Okay. And maybe you've said to them, you need to change your attitude, buddy. Do it the right way. <laughs> um, you can cry and clean your room, or you can get a spanking and cry and clean your room. But uh, you're going to clean your room. So let's get a better attitude. I don't, I don't know. That's, uh, I think adverbs are very important because it tells us how the verbs are done. And the verb here is receive or accept. In, in NIV, it's accept, but it's it, it can be translated receive. And how do we do that? We do that humbly. This is talking about a disposition that is necessary for reception of the Word of God. We have to come before the Word of God humbly, not like, I know better than you. I'm going to read into the Word of God my take on it. Instead, we come to it and we lay all that aside and we kneel before God and we say, Lord, you speak what you want and I adjust my life to you. You ever, have anybody here willing to admit you've ever disagreed with the Bible? 
Nobody's willing to admit that. <laughs> Probably we have. If not in an intentional thought, maybe something said that challenged us. We're like, oh, I don't, I don't like that. Maybe it's not that you disagreed with it. Maybe it's that you didn't like it. Maybe you knew what the Bible said and you still did the other thing. Okay, those are, those are all indications that in some way or another, we didn't like what the Bible said. And so, in a, in a way, we weren't humble to hear what it said or it challenges us to a belief. And we're, we're not brave enough to make that, make that jump. But we have, to, we have to receive it humbly. And if we're to humbly receive it, it, must, it has to be more than just knowing it. Because, um, after all... If we just know the Word of God, there's a sense in which we can feel that if we can just know it, that's enough. But what God's calling us to is more than that. He wants us to, he wants us to respond to it, to receive it, and really, really welcome the Word of God in. Because after all, just having knowledge, the Bible says that knowledge puffs up or makes us proud. And so there has to be a response. This is the disposi- disp- uh, disposition of receiving is to humbly receive it. And uh, it has to be more than just knowledge. Humility is the disposition that takes it in and allows it to transform us. Okay, so that's the first thing about the Word is that if we're going to receive it, if we're going to be open to the Word of God, we have to be humble enough to to hear what it says and listen to it, and change, and respond to it, and say, the Word of God is right, and if I disagree, I'm the one who's wrong, and my mind has to be changed. Okay? The, second, the second thing that it says about the Word of God here is that the Word calls for change. Okay? The Word calls for change. When the, the Bible comes in, then there's some things that must go in our lives. Okay? So this is where that first part that we read in verse 20, verse 21, uh, therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you. This is The way this is said is by getting rid of all moral filth and uh, the excess of evil, whatever that means, then you can humbly accept the word of God. And maybe it's the humbling acceptance of the Word of God leads to this other part where we want to get rid of those other things. But they're really part of the same thing, that you can't, you can't welcome the Word of God when we continue to allow sin to rule in our lives. Now, I don't mean that there, we won't ever do things that are wrong. I mean when there is a, a sin that we know about that we're allowing to remain. If you've ever been there, you probably found the Bible really hard to read while you let that sin sit in its place. It's because these two things need to go together, the, the repentance and the acceptance of the Word of God. The, the hearing of God say, repent of this and, and change, and um, getting rid of those behaviors. So notice that this is, it says here, uh, getting rid of all moral filth and the prevalent evil. This is one of my favorite King James phrases right here. So uh, the superfluity of naughtiness. I love that. I love it way, the way it says that. What does it mean? Uh, I wouldn't know, but I do know what um, prevalent evil means, or some uh, translate this as uh, evil or wicked overabundance. And this probably has to do with those things that are habits that God has come and he's cleansed us from sin and he's given us the power to live 
victorious over sin, but they're habits that we have lived with so that they persist until we get rid of them. Are you, are you with me on that? That not every habit is automatically broken when you come to Jesus. The power of it's broken. The practice of it may take some effort on our part. Are you with me? So what that means is like uh, that he's come, he's cleansed us of our sin, he's forgiven us of our sin, he's empowered us by the Holy Spirit to be victorious over sin. Now we're to get rid of those things. That's why there's all these commands in the Bible, put off the old man and put on the new man, is that there's a part we have to play in this. And here it says, um, get rid of all moral filth. This is this is a term that's used related to dirty clothes, not clothes that can be washed, clothes that you're done with them, you need to throw them away, okay? So that's what this is referring to. And the prevalent evil is that the, that evil residue that may be left over after the internal sin has been washed away. So here... This is not a separate command, but it's connected to receiving the word, a phrase that probably refers to doing our part to get rid of the habits that have been cleansed but have not yet been brought into conformity with the newness of the Christian life. So I might have told you this before, but my dad, um, he grew up in a Christian home. His dad was an evangelist and maybe a pastor, and his mom was a pretty godly woman. But for whatever reason, their kids... Um, my dad's generation, his brothers and sisters, except for maybe one, I think almost all of them just went wild. I don't know what happened, but they uh, they were out in the world doing all the things that people were doing. And so when he met my mom, he was kind of a rough guy. And after he met my mom, he told me this later. He said, I don't know where I'd be if I hadn't met your mom. So... She straightened him out, however, however she did that. But uh, the thing that really did this for him is they started to go to church. They went back to church, and they got connected to church. My dad um, welcomed Christ into his life, and, and he said um, after that, he'd, he'd been a, prior to that, he'd been a terrible cusser, terrible, had a terrible mouth. And he couldn't seem to, after he came to Christ... Stop doing that. He just it just went on with his Christian life for some reason, and he said one day somebody said something to him at a hardware store, and he jumped all over that guy, and he cussed him, and he he pinned him up against the wall, and he said, "I left there so ashamed of myself. I told the Lord, God, if you will take this away, I will never swear again." And I want to tell you that must that was probably back in the fifties when that happened, or maybe early sixties. And long before I was born, I never heard my dad ever say a swear word my whole life. And so I'm only saying that to say that God gave him the victory over that. And it was something that was that God had given him power over in the past, but he um, wasn't living in the light of that until he recognized it and recognized this is a problem and I need to deal with it. And so God gave him the victory to be an overcomer and with that that moral filth that can still kind of remain on the exterior of our life, the habits that we have and the superfluity of naughtiness that we we need to take care of. Uh, And God can give us victory in that. So the first thing about the word is that the word uh, must humbly be received. The second is that it calls for change in our life. And the change is that um, we we have to become more 
uh, like God in our moral character and get rid of certain behaviors that aren't honoring to him. The third thing is it says that the word is planted in you. The word is planted in you, which suggests something that takes root and it grows if it's cultivated. Okay, so he's saying that we're to receive the word already planted in you. This seems to be some kind of agreement with what God has begun. Okay. This isn't the only place it says something like that. In Philippians chapter 2, I think is verse 12 and 13, it says, uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Anybody know why? It says, for God is working in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Work out suggests the cultivation of the gift. We're not working for our salvation. We're cultivating the salvation that's been planted in us. That's different altogether. This is our part in the sanctifying process is that it doesn't just happen automatically. Yes, Jesus comes in and he changes us from the inside out, but there's participation that's involved in that. And as we participate with God, it begins to cultivate. So notice planted in you sounds a lot like something agricultural, doesn't it? Planted. Like the seed has been sown, and if it's properly cultivated, it will grow up into a plant. And so this is the picture that James is using of the Word of God. It's planted in us, and if we'll cultivate with the help of the Holy Spirit, we're not alone in this. It's not like all us pouring our effort into this. This is us in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, as Philippians 2 uh, would suggest that if we receive it meekly, then we will uh, we'll see that plant grow. Okay, so the word is planted in you, and it's already planted in you. That might bring some confusion because he's talking about the gospel, the word of the gospel, and it sounds like some of these other things that are dealing with the sin area are law, and how do we how do we work with those two? I'll suggest something else in just a moment related to that. But notice the, the next thing here is that the word, this is the fourth thing, the word is able to save you. It's the same word that's able to bring, sal- bring us to the fullness of our salvation as also is able to um, sanctify us. And that's the thing is the saving word is the sanctifying word. Because the good news of Jesus, uh, remember when Jesus came preaching what his message was? Anybody remember in the Gospels? He started with one one word, and then, what was it? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. That's the gospel. It's repent. Can you believe that? We don't hear that a lot these days. Nobody wants to talk about sin and repentance, but repent's the first word of the good news, isn't it? That repent, for the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so the good news of the gospel is that the king has come to call people to repent and enter the kingdom, people who previously would have been excluded. He's called them to repent and enter the kingdom, receiving forgiveness, salvation, and discipleship. All of this is part of the same word. God didn't just call us to save us to get to heaven. He called us to be sharers in his holiness. Make sense? So it's not just about getting to heaven, and Lord, see you there. Thank you for the free gift. He's He, he who uh, foreknew us, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. 
So his goal is not just to make us, get us to heaven. His goal is to make us like Jesus. Okay? So all of this is part of the good news. All right, let's quickly go to this third thing. We're to be, we're to be listeners. We're to be receivers. What do you think the last one is? <laughs> be doers. That's right. Be doers, not just... Not just uh, listeners, it's good to be listeners, and I think that's the starting point. If we're not listening, there's a problem. In um, just going back to the Old Testament, the, the creedal statement that Israel said was the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And the application is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? So... The theological truth and the application. God is one, and you shall love him with everything. God is one, and you shall love him with everything. So hearing in the Old Testament had the implication of obedience. And you know, the the Greek word for hear is akuo, and it means to hear and obey. Not just to listen, but to obey. It takes it on to the next level, like... It's not enough just to be hearing the words, to even have memorized it, um, because that's not biblical hearing. Biblical hearing is not just knowing about something. How many times did Jesus rebuke guys like scribes and Pharisees and say, um, you're deaf to hear the words of God. You're blind to see these things. You can't see them. Seeing, you don't see. Hearing, you don't hear. It's not the same having heard physically as having received and being willing to do. And so there's a, there's a suggestion or an implication of obedient response to true hearing in the Bible. So notice it says here in verse uh, 22, don't, be, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away immediately and forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Okay, so notice here the um, the command is, in ver- at the end of verse 22, where it says, do what it says. And actually, if we were to translate this more um, exactly from the Greek, it would be become doers of the word. Become doers of the word. Don't be hearers, only become. That's uh, talking about a change in how we've responded to the word in the past. Become doers of the word. We need to uh, we need to respond to the way that God has spoken to us. Not merely listening, it's good to listen. Not merely hearing in a physical sense, it's good to do that. In fact, um, one of the things I, I like to do is if I lay down for a little bit for a nap, I like to put the Bible on and just let it kind of soak in. That's not the same as exactly like reading a passage that says, go do this, and you go do it right away. But there's some value to that. I think it it can help us to think through those thoughts. Our mind's still working. But I think the most important thing here is that that there's not an arrested development between having heard something God said and the action that should follow. And you'll find that there's a lot of 
things that should follow this. But don't merely listen. He says that when we merely listen, there's a self-deceptive quality. Look at verse 22. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Why is that deceptive? Have you ever thought through that? Why would it be deceptive only to listen to it? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, you can feel good about yourself. Yeah. I think I think that's that's it right there is that that feels very spiritual. I think about the state of the American church is that there's a lot of people in America that and this is probably true in other places too that feel like their spiritual duty is to come and sit for in our church 2 hours on Sunday morning and just hear. And that's it. And that that like like checked off the box and everything's good and I'm good with God and God's good with me and see you next Sunday. And that's really a limited view of the Christian life. It's not accurate at all for what God's calling us to do. But you can feel like you've accomplished something because you know a little bit more about God's Word. And there's even a sense in which you can feel that you become the master of this information when you know certain things. But it's self-deceptive to just be a listener, feeling good spiritually, but not do anything. What did Jesus call the scribes and Pharisees? What was one of the names that he used for them? Hypocrites, mask wearers, right? You guys act like you're faithful to God, but you're hypocritical. Jesus even told the disciples about the uh, scribes and Pharisees, the teachers of the law. He said, do what they say, but don't do what they do because they're hypocrites. They don't they don't translate what they know into action. Somewhere it stops. So James here is saying, be doers of the word. James, I don't know if you know this, but the popular understanding is that James is the half-brother of Jesus. Do you know that? This James that we're, writing, or we're talking about right here is half-brother. Actually, uh, this is interesting too. It, it's not going to provide any spiritual... Um, sustenance for you at all, I'm sure. But do you know James is actually Jacob? So, Jacob. Anyway. Um, he's the half-brother of Jesus, and uh, he probably would have known all about Jesus' confrontation because he, it appears, he came to faith sometime either before, right before the resurrection or probably after the resurrection. And so... Uh, he would have heard all of the stories about the hypocrites who didn't put into practice what was said. But I'd like you to notice here, um, be, become doers of the word. And if you don't, then you're like a person who looks in the mirror and walks away and forgets what, what they look like. You forget your own identity. You forget who you are. You forget what life's about. And somebody told me one time that um, they've read the Bible enough they don't need to read the Bible anymore. And you would think that was a like a brand new Christian, but it wasn't. It was somebody who I looked up to and respected. Somebody who'd been in ministry. I've read the Bible. I've studied this many years, this many hours. I don't need to do that anymore. And I think of this verse where when we walk away from that, we forget what it looks like. We forget what we're supposed to be like. We forget the God-centered world. We forget 
been reading a little bit about how we learn. There's a book called How We Learn, which you probably can guess what it's about. It's about how we learn. There's another book that I've been reading simultaneously called Atomic Habits. And uh, the premise of the Atomic Habits books is that if you do something every day, you make small gains that increase exponentially over time. Like if you keep doing it every day, if it's if you have a 1% gain every day, think of what that would be over the course of a year. This other book, um, How We Learn, talks about the value of spaced repetition. Have you ever heard of that, spaced repetition? So this is one of the ways that they found out that we learn best is when actually we forget and then we remind ourselves of something. And I thought this is kind of interesting because there's um, there's some something that's analogous to the Christian life in this. And so the guy is writing along and he's talking about how when he went to college, um, he went about studying in a certain way and he found out that actually sometimes when there's distraction and space, and then you come back to it later after having come to the verge of forgetting and then remembering, it makes that impression all the more strong, and you create strong neural pathways when you remind yourself of things again and again after space repetition. I thought it's an interesting thing that God would have us go to church like we do, where there's a whole week, right? Well, you're here on Wednesday, so you've had a couple of days, but... You, you get that space, and then you come back. We come back, and we're reminded. Or we read our Bibles in the morning. We have a whole day, and we come back, and we're reminded. And those those uh, connections in our mind are strengthened about who we are and what this is about. And we've had this whole period of time in life to to develop that opportunity to learn again and to strengthen what we know. And I think that's really important to the Christian life is that we we come again and again. Some people will say, I don't go to church anymore because I already know what the Bible says. Yeah, but don't we need to be reminded again and again? Like the images, I don't know if you've been away from somebody that you love for a period of time and you found that the image that you have of their face in your mind begins to get blurry. Then you see them again and you're reminded, this is what they look like. Or... How about yourself in the mirror? Anybody ever just br- breeze by the mirror real quick and didn't pay much attention and you got a quick glance and then you got uh, somewhere else where you're at a restaurant or something and they got a mirror wall and you see yourself and you're like, oh dear, <laughs> should have spent a little more time there. And you're reminded of what you look like. I'd like you to look at this. First of all, let me just say this. And uh, the perfect law of liberty just means that God's way of doing things is perfect, and that if we'll obey Him in His revelation of Himself and what He expects of us, this isn't talking about necessarily uh, following the dietary law of Israel. This is talking about the moral law. If we'll do this, it brings freedom, okay? It brings liberty. But notice how we're to look at it, the kinds of, the kinds of doers here. Whoever looks intently, okay? This is more than like I'm going to read a scripture a day and just move my eyes over the words until I get to the end of it and then I've read it. This is like that's the kind of reading you do in college when you got to read lots of stuff and you're like my eyes passed over it, I read it. They uh, they gave us uh, this this can only happen at a Bible college and even there maybe it's not a good idea. But at the end of the 
course, a lot of times they would ask the question based on your integrity. Did you read the material you're supposed to read? Well, <laughs> my eyes passed over it. I know that. Whether I read it or not, that's up for debate. You know what I mean? So we got to come to this place. Look at what it says here. We're to read or to look intently. This isn't exactly reading because there's more to it than that. I think this pr- probably could include not only reading, but listening. Like even what we're doing tonight, being intent and attentive to the Word of God. And then the second thing it says here is not only looking intently into it, um, but continues in it, okay? So once is not enough. I read the Bible in uh, 82, and I'm good. No, we continue in it. We continue not only in hearing what it has to say, but in doing it and in not forgetting. That's kind of the opposite side of the coin of looking intently and continuing is that we we don't forget what we've heard. We keep reminding ourselves of it. We keep that spaced repetition, like, I've almost forgotten this. I need to be reminded of it and to know what it says. And then not only that, but finally here, uh, but doing it. And that doing is a present tense, isn't it? Doing what he's asked us to do. And then I'd like you to notice this last thing here, and we're done. Two minutes early. I'm giving you one back from last week. Notice the person will be prospered in their doing. says uh, they will be blessed in what they do. Does that mean everything they do? Well, maybe, but I think more specifically here, the whole idea is doing what the Word of God has said. And so if we do what the Word of God has said, then we'll be blessed in it. Uh, Another translator writes it this way, the person will be prospered in doing, in the doing. Okay, So what we are trying to do in obedience to what God has said will be prospered in doing that. Okay, So I just challenge us with those thoughts. How do we respond to uh, a world that's crazy and some trials that happen and and different things. One of the things that we need to do is we need to cling tightly to God's word. We need to be, we need to be listeners. Um, we need to be. Can you think of the next one? We need to be receivers, right? And we need to be doers. And uh, God will bless us for that. I got to stop, or we're going to go over. All right, stand with me if you would. Thanks for your attention tonight, Lord. We want to be hearers. We want to be doers of your word. Give us a hunger for your word. Help us to know how to respond and give us wisdom to do it, we pray in Jesus' name. Bless all who are here. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.